How do you deter and put the Houthis back in the box where they're not carrying out these strikes while not getting sucked into a broader conflict with the Houthis in Yemen? Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Since mid-November, the de facto authorities in most of Yemen, the Houthis, have launched at least 23 attacks on commercial ships in the Red Sea. This includes the commandeering of one ship and holding hostage a crew from Mexico, Bulgaria, Ukraine, Romania, and the Philippines. The Houthis say they are doing this in response to Israel's war in Gaza, and these attacks have severely disrupted a key global shipping lane. This may lead to global supply chain disruptions and increased costs for commercial goods. Indeed, the cost of shipping has already soared over the past two weeks because of these Red Sea attacks. My guest today, Gregory D. Johnson, is a non-resident fellow at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. He is currently the Associate Director at the Institute for Future Conflict at the U.S. Air Force Academy. He is a longtime Yemen watcher who served on the U.N. Security Council's panel of experts on Yemen. And he is also an adjunct professor at the Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver, which is a wonderful advertiser of ours this month. We kick off with a brief background on the Houthis and their role in Yemen's civil wars. And we spend most of this conversation discussing the motivation behind the Houthi attacks and why these attacks have backed the United States into a real corner. By the time this episode is published, there is a distinct possibility that the United States or the United Kingdom may have carried out missile strikes in Yemen. And we discuss at length the implication of possible military action against the Houthis. This conversation offers really vital background for understanding the Houthis in Yemen, the trajectory of Yemen's civil wars over the last decade, and the risks of regional escalation and regional fallout from the Israel-Gaza conflict. If you've not done so already, please visit globaldispatches.org to sign up for our newsletter. At globaldispatches.org, you can also find our entire 11 years of catalog and other articles that either I write or I commission from others. 
And at globaldispatches.org, you can also find a contact button where you can get in touch with me if there's anything on your mind. I always love hearing from listeners. Now, here is my conversation with Gregory D. Johnson. Before we discuss the most recent attacks on commercial shipping in the Red Sea by the Houthis, I would love for you to help set some context for listeners. Who are the Houthis and why have they gained a degree of notoriety in the West over the last decade? So the Houthis are an organization that really came to prominence in the early aughts. So 2004, their roots stretch back much deeper into Yemeni history. So the initial sort of precursor to the group that we know today as the Houthis was a group called the Shabab al-Mu'mineen, which started to be formed in North Yemen in the 1980s. And Shabab al-Mu'mineen just means the believing youth. And this was a group, Yemen has different sects of Islam within it. There's a Zaidi, which is a Shia sect. There's Shafis, which are a Sunni sect. And the Zaidis, the Shia sect in North Yemen, they had ruled the country for a long time, for about a thousand years, from about 893 up until an imam was overthrown in 1962. And that ended Zaidi rule in the north. And this group, the Shabab al-Mu'mineen, was worried that traditional Zaidi heritage, traditional Zaidi culture, traditional Zaidi theology was all being overthrown in this new Republican regime. And so they banded together, formed basically summer camps in the 1980s, although these summer camps very quickly became militarized. This went on into the 1990s. And then in 2004, the Houthis came into conflict with what was then the Yemeni government under the rule of then President Ali Abdullah Saleh. And they fought six successive wars. So from 2004 to 2010, there were six discrete wars between the Houthis and Ali Abdullah Saleh's government. Saleh's government came very close a number of times to wiping the Houthis off, but was never quite able to finish the job. The initial leader, a man named Hussein Badreddin al-Houthi, was killed very early in 2004. Later, his father took over, and now his younger brother, Abdul Malik al-Houthi, who's the current leader of the organization. So six wars throughout the early aughts from 2004 to 2010. And then, of course, there was the Arab Spring in 2011. Ali Abdullah Saleh stepped down in 2012. And the Houthis were instrumental, or at least a part of the Arab Spring and the popular protests against Saleh. And it was from 2012 to 2014 when the Houthis really started to take control. So first they started to take control in their home governorate of Sada, which is in the far north of Yemen, right on the border with Saudi Arabia. And then eventually in 2014, when Yemen was sort of divided, when Saleh had stepped down, but he had sort of went into a private role, but still controlled loyalties within the military. The new president wasn't particularly powerful. Yemen's military was split. So during this very sort of chaotic period in 2012 to 2014, the Houthis were able to gain quite a bit of leverage up in the north while the rest of Yemen was distracted. And then in September of 2014, the Houthis moved down out of the mountains and they rejoined with their old nemesis, Ali Abdullah Saleh, the former president who was still around, rejoined with him and basically carried out a bloodless coup where they took control of Sana'a, the capital of Yemen, and installed themselves essentially as the de facto authorities. 
That, which happened in September of 2014, then led to Saudi Arabia's decision to enter into a war against the Houthis on behalf of the Yemeni government. So Saudi Arabia and a coalition of what was then 10 countries started to go into Yemen, carried out bombing campaigns. And that war, which Saudi involvement began in March of 2015, still continues today, although over the past couple of years, there's been basically a ceasefire that is largely held with a few violations here and there. But the war is still technically ongoing, but there are no longer sort of Saudi and Emirati airstrikes like there were in 2015 to 2018, 2019. And later in this conversation, I do want to ask you about how this recent spate of attacks in the Red Sea and potential international response may impact the fact that since 2002, there has been the substantial reduction of hostilities in Yemen, which, you know, at one point was the worst humanitarian crisis in the world for several years running, according to the United Nations. So I do want to get there with you. But for now, I am kind of curious to learn from you what you think is motivating these new attacks on commercial shipping in the Red Sea by the Houthis. I mean, over the course of the conflict in Gaza, the Houthis have fired like a limited number of missiles and drones towards Israel. Mm-hmm. Didn't do like real, like substantial damage. But these attacks on commercial shipping seem to be like a really major escalation on their part. Like assuming that their decision making is not motivated exclusively by the selfless solidarity with Palestinians, like what do you suppose triggered this decision to attack Red Sea shipping right now? Yeah, I think there's a lot there, Mark. So first, I think it is a little bit of the Houthis are throwing a bunch of things at the wall and trying to figure out what has the greatest impact. So you're exactly right. Shortly after Israel went into Gaza in retaliation for the October 7th attacks by Hamas, Israel goes in, the Houthis fire a few missiles toward Israel. Some are shot down, some miss their target. And then after that, they begin attacking commercial shipping throughout the Red Sea. They take a ship hostage, carry out a few other strikes. The U.S. eventually sort of forms this coalition called Prosperity Guardian to safeguard ships. As we're recording right now, it, you know, military strikes from the U.S. and U.K. may be in the offing in retaliation because the Houthis have carried out about 27 different strikes over the past couple of months. The U.S. on January 3rd, the U.S. and 13 other countries gave what the U.S. called its final warning. After that, the Houthis fired a drone boat. They carried out a very sophisticated attack a couple of days ago, and then again on January 11th, they carried out another attack. What's behind it, though, there are a number of different things. So war is good for the Houthis, and it's good both from a regional perspective as well as from a domestic perspective. So first, on the regional side, the Houthis are very closely tied to Iran. This was not always the case, but over the course of the war, where Saudi Arabia that we spoke about just a minute ago, Saudi Arabia and the UAE primarily are involved from 2015 on. The Houthis were isolated. They had a few short-range Scud missiles and some others that had a range of about 300 kilometers that they could fire from Yemen, but they didn't get very far into Saudi Arabia. Very quickly, however, during the war, Iran began smuggling ballistic missile components into Yemen 
Yemen in violation of UN sanctions. But Iran was very successful in doing that. And over the course of the war, which again, began in 2015, so over basically the past decade, the Iranian Houthi relationship has grown very, very close. And so by carrying out attacks against shipping in the Red Sea, what the Houthis are able to do is they're essentially able to give Iran a bit of a plausible deniability. That is, the Houthis can carry out attacks, Iran can be encouraging them, supporting them, providing support for them, giving intelligence to them, while Iran can publicly say, look, we have no control, the Houthis are the authorities there in Yemen, they're making this decision on their own. So it's a way for Iran to basically have its cake and eat it too. That is, Iran can escalate against the U.S. and push back against the U.S. and Israel while maintaining that Iran isn't actually behind it. That's on the regional side. On the domestic side, the Houthis are in a strong position when they're under attack. So the Houthis gained the most popular support within Yemen when Saudi Arabia and the UAE were carrying out airstrikes because many of these airstrikes, whether from incompetence or unprofessionalism, did not hit Houthi targets and instead killed civilian targets. So there was a rally around the flag effect when Saudi Arabia and the Emirates were carrying out airstrikes over the course of this war. Now, those have, as we said, have largely ended over the past couple of years. What that has meant is that the Houthis are now being held to account in northern Yemen. So the Houthis don't hold all of Yemen. They just hold the the northern highlands, essentially. And they're being forced to govern in a way that they were never forced to govern previously. And the Houthis have bidden off more than they can choose. So they have significant domestic rivals, including among the tribes where the Houthis are Sayyids or descendants of the Prophet, at least the Houthi family is. And there's been a long rivalry in Yemen. We don't need to go too far down this rabbit hole, but a long rivalry between the Sayyids and the Sheikhs. And the Sheikhs are those who lead the tribe. There's always been sort of a rivalry of who is top dog. For a long time, it was the Sayyids. Over the past 40 or 50 years, it's been the Sheikhs. And the Houthis are trying to reverse that calculation. And so there's a lot of animosity from tribal sheikhs and from some in the tribes against them. There's also animosity. We talked earlier about Ali Abdullah Saleh. So he had partnered with the Houthis when they went into Sana'a in 2014. And his party, the GPC, even though Saleh was killed in 2017 by the Houthis themselves, that's sort of a longer story, but his party is still allied with the Houthis, but they've been sort of elbowed out of power as well. So what the Houthis are finding is once the ceasefire went into effect in you know 2021, um, as it sort of the war tapered off and then ceasefire, and there's not an official ceasefire, but uh, as fighting has dwindled over the past couple of years, they found that there's been more domestic unrest, there's been more domestic challenges now than there were during the height of the war. So if the Houthis can, both for rhetorical purposes as well as ideological and religious purposes, say that they're defending Palestinians by carrying out attacks on shipping in the Red Sea, but also sort of bait the United States, Israel, the UK, anybody else involved into firing airstrikes into Yemen, then the Houthis think that they can come out as victors. So that is they will gain a lot of domestic support. So there will be another rally around the flag effect. The Houthis will get a pass on governance and their domestic rivals, both the tribal sheikhs and and the GPC, will sort of fall in line. Because if you don't fall in line, then you're de facto on the side of the US and Israel and the UK, and nobody wants that. And so for the Houthis, this is good. They're also banking on the fact that any US or UK military or airstrikes 
are not really going to do that much damage. So the Houthis are an organization, obviously, that they've survived nearly a decade of war with Saudi Arabia and the UAE. They're still around. They've survived airstrikes. And in fact, airstrikes, as bad as they've been for the country of Yemen, politically, they've been pretty good for the Houthis. I mean, that's really fascinating. I mean, it just sounds like the Houthis are, are much more competent and better fighters than they are at governing and at domestic politics. And, you know, part of the reason that they are launching these attacks now is because they're coming under domestic political pressure for a variety of reasons related to their inability to govern effectively. I saw, for example, that there were kind of recent protests about the fact that government employees weren't being paid. And those protests seem to have evaporated now that the Houthis are, are once again, you know, poking the bear. Yeah, war is a great distraction for the Houthis, and there's a number of things that are converging. So the Palestinian cause, which the Houthis, what they call the Saracha, their sort of slogan is death to the U.S., death to Israel, curse upon the Jews, victory for Islam, and so forth. And so this has long been, at least rhetorically, part of what it is that the Houthis have said that they stood on. So we're recording this on Thursday, January 11th. By the time this is published, you know, The U.S., the U.K. may have actually launched military strikes against the Houthis in Yemen. We don't know, but that's certainly a possibility, frankly, one that's looking increasingly likely by the day. So I wanted to ask you about the implications of like a Western military attack against Houthi targets for that kind of shaky truce that has been holding since 2002. You know, could this lead to the undoing of that ceasefire and a resumption of the kind of horrific fighting that we've seen since 2014, 2015? Yeah, I mean, anything is possible once you start firing rockets and firing missiles. And I think the U.S. and the U.K. are really in a difficult situation. That is, the U.S. and the U.K., so the U.S. has formed this coalition, Prosperity Guardian, which we spoke about briefly earlier. They've issued warnings to the Houthis. Clearly, none of this has deterred the Houthis. The Houthis continue to carry out attacks. So if the U.S. does nothing, then the Houthis are going to continue to carry out attacks on shipping through the Red Sea. Already, we're seeing ships that are no longer going through the Red Sea. Insurance rates are going up and so forth. The U.S. could also fire missile strikes, but I think the Houthi calculation is that missile strikes would be good for them. That is, they don't think the missile strikes will be significant enough to do any sort of lasting damage, and the Houthis think that this will help them domestically. So if the U.S. does fire some strikes and the Houthis continue to carry out strikes against shipping in the Red Sea, then what does the U.S. do? And I think the the balance the U.S. and the U.K. are are trying to work at this moment is if they just carry out strikes, the Houthis are likely to continue to carry out attacks against shipping. But, you know, if it's strikes, if it's ground troops, if it's, you know, a massive package of military and airstrikes, then the U.S. risks getting sucked into a broader war against the Houthis in Yemen. I mean, this is a group, as we talked about earlier, Mark, that has been fighting for almost continuously for the past two decades. War does not scare the Houthis. The U.S. has been fighting for two decades in the Middle East and really wants no part of any other wars in the Middle East. So the U.S. is walking a very fine line. How do you 
deter and put the Houthis back in the box where they're not carrying out these strikes while not getting sucked into a broader conflict with the Houthis in Yemen. The challenge that Saudi Arabia had for large portions of this war was it could do nothing and the Houthis would sort of remain in power in the north. It could carry out airstrikes, which were basically just helping the Houthis domestically, or it could insert ground troops for a long and bloody guerrilla warfare in really rugged topography in the northern highlands of Yemen with no guarantee of success. And Saudi shied away from that last option and basically continued to carry out airstrikes for most of the war. Now, as to your question as to whether U.S. airstrikes would have any impact on the ceasefire and on an eventual peace deal, I think one thing to keep in mind here is that we often talk about the war in Yemen as if it's one war. But I think that's a mistake of analysis. I think that there are actually multiple wars happening simultaneously in Yemen. So there's the war that we're talking about, which is the Houthis against Saudi Arabia, the ceasefire, some sort of a peace deal. Saudi Arabia and the UAE could withdraw from Yemen tomorrow and sign a peace agreement with the Houthis, and it would do nothing to end the local civil war that's going on within Yemen. So the Houthis are in the north. The Houthis have a big population base. But the Houthis don't have access to really one of Yemen's only two basic resources that they can export, which are oil and gas. And oil and gas are in Marib, Shabwa, and Hadramut. And these are to the east and then to the southeast in Yemen. And they form this sort of triangle. If listeners see Yemen on a map, if you look at a governorate, they have Marib, Shabwa, Hadramut. That's where all of Yemen's oil and gas exists all the fields. The Houthis need to control at least one of these fields in order to have the economic base to support being a government in the future, which is their goal. They want to rule at at the very least in the north. If they don't have that, they know that they can't survive. And so once Saudi Arabia and the UAE withdraw, the Houthis are in all likelihood going to move into Marib, which is the one closest to them, which will bring them into direct confrontation with a sort of wobbly Frankensteinian coalition of anti-Houthi forces, some of whom are aligned with one another, some of whom hate one another more than they hate the Houthis. So you have Southern secessionists, you have Muslim Brotherhood figures, you have old army figures. This is sort of the very rickety anti-Houthi coalition. So the point of all this is that once Saudi Arabia and the UAE withdraw, once they sign some sort of a peace deal with the Houthis, that doesn't end the war in Yemen. That just ends the regional aspect of the war in Yemen. And then the civil war will continue. So in terms of like optimal international policy right now to reduce the threat to civilian commercial shipping in the Red Sea by the Houthis, I mean, like obviously if there were a ceasefire in Israel and Gaza, the threat would be sharply, sharply reduced. But unfortunately, that that does not seem to be in the offing in the near term. So, so long as the conflict in Gaza is persisting, I take it from your analysis that military action might be counterproductive. Are there diplomatic steps that might reduce the threat to commercial shipping right now that ought to be pursued? I think there are a handful, but I think the U.S. is playing a pretty weak hand. And some of this is because the U.S. has waited until there were 27 Houthi attacks to talk about military strikes. 
So there has been one time previously in history where the U.S. and the Houthis came into direct military confrontation. That was in 2016 under the Obama administration. The Houthis fired some missiles at a U.S. destroyer in the Red Sea. U.S. responded immediately by destroying three radar sites on the Yemeni coast, and the Houthis were sort of put back into the box. The challenge, of course, is that the Houthis of 2024 are not the Houthis of 2016. So they have much more sophisticated equipment, much of it supplied by Iran, some of it produced domestically. They have more fighters. They have more of a steady hand in the north. They're no longer part of a coalition with the former president, Ali Abdullah Saleh, but now they sort of rule independently. And so, as we said, it's a real challenge for the U.S., to sort of carry out military strikes that do enough to deter the Houthis and put them back. And I'm not sure, short of a military confrontation, the scope and scale of which I don't think the Biden administration or the United States government, or or frankly, even the people after the last two decades of, of war in the Middle East would be comfortable with, I don't think anything short of that would deter the Houthis. I think what we're going to see is the Houthis becoming more and more emboldened, particularly if there's a slow ramp up of strikes. So for instance, initially the Houthis public statements were saying that they were carrying out attacks on ships that were Israeli owned ships. And then that expanded to ships that were supporting Israel. And then as the U.S. put together Prosperity Guardian, there was an attempted attack by the Houthis. The U.S. sunk three sort of fast boats that the Houthis had, killed 10 Houthi militiamen. So then the next time on the strike that the Houthis carried out just a couple of days ago, the Houthis said this was actually an attack on American ships in retaliation for the dead Houthi militants. So you see a constant ramping up of tit for tat, but it's a cycle that's sort of spiraling. And I guess my concern for the U.S. is obviously doing nothing is going to result in more Houthi attacks, but carrying out strikes or at least limited strikes is going to involve the Houthis probably becoming more emboldened and carrying out more strikes quicker. And then the next option, something that's not limited, then runs the risk of the U.S. being very drawn into a long, costly, and perhaps unwinnable war in Yemen. And I'm not sure the U.S. really has an endgame. On the diplomatic front, there's not a lot that can be done either. And so, again, the U.S. is playing a fairly weak hand, at least when it comes directly to the Houthis, partly because of what the U.S. is willing and not willing to do, partly because of the position they found themselves in over really what I would say is the past decade and a half of not really having much of a Yemen policy, just ignoring Yemen and hoping the problem goes away. The problem hasn't gone away. The problem has festered. Really, I think the one avenue is pressuring Iran to pressure the Houthis. But now we get back to our initial point, which is that Iran has at least a, it's a fairly transparent fig leaf, but it's still a fig leaf of plausible deniability when it comes to the Houthis. But if the U.S. were able to sufficiently pressure Iran, that might be sort of the one weak point that the Houthis have that we could see some sort of leverage being applied there. But the U.S. does not have great leverage with Iran as we speak. And so that's that's a difficult rabbit to pull out of the hat. I mean, even if there were like a ceasefire in Gaza tomorrow, do you suspect that the Houthis would cease their attacks on shipping in the Red Sea? That's a good question. I think if there had been one uh, maybe a month ago, perhaps. 
But I think the Houthis, you know, in, in a certain way, they're drunk on their own power in that they see the impact that these attacks and many of these attacks have not even been successful. I mean, they fire drones, they fire missiles, the U.S. shoots them down. Obviously, what it costs the U.S. to shoot down these fairly cheap missiles is much more expensive than it is for the Houthis to launch them. But now after Houthi militiamen have been killed, after the Houthis have seen how much impact this has on the United States, I think this particular tactic that the Houthis are utilizing is going to be very hard for them to walk away from. Gregory, thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful. Thanks so much, Mark. Thanks for listening to Global Dispatches. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow the show and enable automatic downloads to get new episodes as soon as they're released. On Spotify, tap the bell icon to get a notification when we publish new episodes. And of course, please visit globaldispatches.org to get on our free mailing list, get in touch with me, and access our full archive. Thank you.